left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. We vet all these pieces of property and crops to make sure that it is a good investment. And I can tell you, we're pretty picky. I've seen some other deals out there that are, have, have came across my desk that we have gladly passed on that have been out in the internet world. We only want stuff that has a true profit potential. Since you are here listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're investing with a group of people. Whether you're investing with family or friends or like-minded people in the left field investors community, group investing is a strategy that can get you into more deals, help you diversify, and go beyond what you can achieve by yourself. Before TribeVest came along, it was difficult to overcome all the hurdles associated with group investing. It was basically a strategy reserved for the wealthy, not anymore. Now, TribeVest helps your group with everything from incorporation, collaboration, banking, and equity management tools all in a single place. So you can focus on building wealth with the people you know, like, and trust. I'm using TribeVest for all five, now six of my investor tribes. It's a game changer. Check them out at tribevest.com. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the left field community. Hi, this is Ryan Stieg, one of the co-founders of Left Field Investors, and you are listening to Passive Investing from Left Field. I'm pleased today to have Brandon Silvera with me. He is the CEO of the crowdfunding website FarmFunder. He's a fourth-generation farmer and real estate investor who's bought and sold millions in real estate. He currently manages over $100 million in assets. His specialty is farm management, land acquisition, and a variety of farm and financing strategies. His passion is to bridge the gap between farmland and investors, which is exactly what we're looking for here today. So Brandon, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Howdy. Thanks for having me. So the way I like to get started generally is just to kind of hear your journey. I understand you're a farmer from way back, but how did you get into crowdfunding and real estate and, and that whole side of things? If you can just kind of tell us your journey, we'd love to hear it. So it all started, uh, you know, my, my family uh, started off uh, early 1900s uh, farming, uh, dairy farming, milking cows. And uh, as we got older, uh, my dad dabbled a little bit in farming and uh, we did some farming for other people. I went off to uh, Cal Poly to get an agricultural degree. When I came back, I mean, it was farming is what I had in my blood and my passion and what I wanted to do. So started farming, uh, doing work for other farmers, slowly started buying uh, farmland, leasing farmland, and then just buying and selling and buying and selling, building the farm up. And I really got into the crowdfunding side of things because I just saw this need for more capital in the agricultural in this asset. And investors really wanted to invest in, in, in farmland and in specific farms, but didn't really have a vehicle to do so. So I mean, this came to me 
oh man, probably in 2006. I didn't start building the site out until 2015. Once we got some changes for the Jobs Act and we were able to crowdfund this type of asset, which was a you know game changer. So it all, believe it or not, just takes slow, slow time, you know, before everything kind of morphed into what it is today. But you know, that's kind of the background. Okay. And what is it today? Can you talk not only about what is crowdfunding? Because our, our community, left field investors, we're typically talking about syndications. And I think crowdfunding is very similar, but it's just maybe on the internet and maybe smaller investment amounts. But what else can you explain about how crowdfunding is different than maybe the typical syndication? Sure. We run under uh, crowdfunding laws and regulations, which means the particular rules that we follow, we have to have accredited investors. So if you're a accredited investor, you can invest in one of our deals and, and you're buying equity. And the way it works is you're buying equity in an LLC and that LLC owns the particular real estate asset. So we start off at about $10,000 for a minimum investment, you know, and it ranges. We have some minimum investments up to 30, something like that. But we pull the investors together. They own the LLC and the LLC owns the asset outright. That's how we structure the deals. There's, of course, many other ways that, that, that some crowdfunding is being done in the equity space, but that's how we structure these deals. So we do that for a safety net. It's great to have the investors invest in this LLC. The LLC owns the asset. And you know, at least there's always this hard asset to hedge against risk. It, you know, it helps mitigate our risk. And what is the asset? Are we talking about we own the land, we own the livestock, or do we own the crops? Can you talk a little bit about just what is the asset and, and how it's structured? Sure. The way we structure it is land. So we're going out and we're looking for either raw land, open land that can be developed into a vineyard or an orchard, something with a value add, or we're looking at a vineyard or an orchard that is already existing that we purchase and the cash flow and the appreciation goes to the investors. So we don't have it structured to where investors are buying any kind of depreciating asset, uh, no tractors, things of that sort. We hire a farm manager or we will manage it ourselves through another company that we have. We do have a, a farm management company where we manage the asset and farm the crops for the investors. And whatever is left after all the bills are paid is your cash yield. And what is the value add? You know, when we think of value add, again, this is kind of out of our wheelhouse, but you know, I typically think of your improving an apartment or you know adding washer dryers to apartment units what is a value add if you're buying just the land and putting a crop on it it's interesting because it's not as uh, fast as a reward as say buying an apartment right so we're looking at buying an open piece of land for example our last project uh, we just did uh, we bought some open land we're developing into a pistachio orchard the orchard was planted here a few months ago and you're looking at a uh, five or six years before you get a crop and eight years before you get a full production crop, right? But you're looking at something that, say, I'm going to use roundabout numbers, that you, you buy a piece of land for $15,000 an acre, you put $10,000 an acre into it, you're in it $25,000 an acre, and that piece of property is now worth $40,000 an acre, right? So that's the value add. You're speculating in the sense that land is going to appreciate it. And in seven or eight years, this crop is still going to be a, uh, a good crop and highly profitable. But it's been very, very good in the ag space. So that's kind of our, our value add. There are some other value adds where you can buy, let's say, an existing vineyard that may need a well drilled or may not have enough water. And you can add 
You can bring production up and treat the ground better, put some better soil amendments in there and possibly get higher production. That's also a value add. Okay. So what's the life cycle then of the investment? Are you you mainly doing things like pistachios that take seven, eight years to pay out or are there also cash flow options? Maybe you're doing a a shorter term thing like wheat or, you know, I, I don't know much about farming, obviously. Are there different types of investments? Meaning, like when you say pistachios, I, I compare that to like a development deal that takes a long time to pay out, but the back end, you have pretty good returns. Are there other things that where you can cash flow immediately or sooner than that kind of time frame? Yeah. So for example, we just closed on a, uh, a walnut orchard that is in high production. It'll have yearly payouts as soon as the crop is harvested and the income is received, we pay out to the investors on a yearly basis. It all depends on what the uh, investor wants. When you have a uh, a crop like this, your return on investment is usually a little bit lower than obviously developing and putting all this money out before the crop comes in. But yeah, so the most you know that we pay out as far as time frame goes is once every year. We harvest the crop once a year, and we'll pay out once a year. Okay. And what's the typical hold on an investment? I mean, I guess it would d- depend on whether it's something that you bought already producing or if it's something that isn't, but is there a strategy? Is that known like you're 10 years from now, then you sell? Is there a big upside and appreciation? Yeah, we like to hold on for about 10 years. So we'll look at the market, of course, at, you know, say year seven or eight and year 11 or 12 possibly. But our, our goal is for 10 years. We want to realize that appreciation. We want to buy a young orchard that is just on the cusp of production that has a long lifespan. So when we sell it in year 10, let's say the orchard is 14 years old or 15 years old, and we can sell it for a premium, we realize that appreciation. And then we also can depreciate the orchard itself as far as the trees. There's a large tax benefit for investors to buy an existing orchard, take the uh, depreciation, and then capitalize on the appreciation over time. Can you talk a little bit about how the depreciation works? I, I didn't know that you could depreciate the farmland. So does that work just like you would depreciate, you know, like do a cost segregation or whatever and get a depreciation on a multifamily or is it, is it different? You can only depreciate the trees themselves that are planted on it or any kind of structure, right? Just like if there's a barn or anything like that. So I'll use round numbers again and and say you paid $20,000 an acre for a piece of land that has producing trees. And let's say the land is valued at $10,000 and you can depreciate that $10,000 an acre, right, of trees and and infrastructure that's on there. Every state is different and, and there's different tax laws and whatnot. But you can take as much, you know, we like to take as much of that appreciation, depreciation as we can right off. So, you know, it's good because you, especially if you have a tax issue and it flows through on your, your K-1 that says that, hey, I invested $10,000, but I have a $5,000 loss. You can save that on your taxes, but yet you're still invested in a cash flow asset that should be giving you cash flow for the next 10 years. So that's the big benefit that we like for already producing trees. Right. And is there, do you finance these or, or is, is there any financing available or is there no leverage at all? Yeah, we have a mixture and it really just depends on the property itself, what our cash flow looks like. For example, uh, you know, the last deal we just did, we're going to finance out 40%. We don't like to do any more than 40% because agriculture's a there's large swings, I you know, in the income. So it, it's not as structured like it is an apartment, right? So you know that you're going to get $100,000 a month and your debt is say $70,000 a month. 
a little bit different in ag because you have uh, mother nature, you have on and off years where you'll have high producing years and low producing years just to the genetics of the tree itself. So we like to leverage everything about 40%. You know, if that works out, it gets a little bit more return on investment and get some uh, cash back to the investors as well. Okay. I've heard, you know, there are some big names that are investing in farmland like Bill Gates and, and some other kind of big time people. Why are they investing in farmland rather than other things? I, I get the sense that the returns, you said they, they might not be as stable, but are they generally higher returns than you would get investing in some standard real estate like, like we might do? Farming is a long-term investment play. So over the long term, farming has done, say, 11%, I think is the number that they came up with that farming has, has returned. The larger institutional investors and these wealthy billionaires, they see the writing on the wall. I think inflation is coming. I think most people think inflation is coming. We've printed an inordinate amount of money in the last 24 months. You know, Once that really hits our uh, economy here, and hard asset inflation, which you, as you know, we've already seen in, in housing and, and different things and, and apartments. We're just starting to see it in farming. And I think that when you buy a piece of land for $10,000 and you hold on to that piece of property and that commodity, let's just say it's corn, right? And corn is uh, $4 a bushel and it goes up to, uh, as inflation hits, it's up to $14 a bushel. It makes it quite a cheap asset. So it's a great inflation hedge. And I think that's the largest region these guys are parking money in, in land. Hey, left fielders, this is Julian McClurkin. When I'm not on the court with the Harlem Globetrotters, I'm the chief storyteller for Tribe Vest. Now, you might be thinking, why would Tribe Vest hire a Globetrotter? <laughs> well, through my travels around the world, I've met so many amazing people and heard their incredible stories. And it's no different at Tribe Vest. My job is to share the stories of people investing together as a group, as a tribe. TribeVest allows groups to pool their capital, set up their LLCs and bank accounts, help with operating agreements, funding rounds, and so much more. Whether you're investing with other dads from your kid's preschool class or getting into real estate syndications with people around the country like LFI infielder Brian Pawnell, TribeVest helps them all make it happen. If you want to hear more about stories about TribeVest customers, just check out TribeVest's YouTube channel. And if you're already ready to start investing as a group, head on over to TribeVest.com today. What types of crops? I mean, you've mentioned a few, but as far as if we we're going to go on onto uh, the Farm Funder website and, and invest in a few, what would we see there? And then how do you di differentiate between which is the better investment or which is going to pay higher returns or a quicker returns or slower returns? How do you figure all that stuff out? So we mostly deal with permanent orchards or vineyards. We like the nut crops, something that can be stored. It's not perishable. That way you can ride out market instability. We've seen this happen before with cherries or stone fruit and things of that sort, which are highly uh, perishable. If you don't move it at a certain time, you lose the market. There's a lot of risks there. We like nut crops. We like uh, contracted vineyards, things of that sort. And mostly because we can get a higher return. So what we have not been doing are some of the Midwestern type lease backs where you buy a piece of property, say for twelve or $13,000 an acre, you lease it back to a farmer for a structured 2% or 3% return and then expect a 4% appreciation and claim a 7% return. 
I haven't been doing any of that. I'm not saying that that's not realistic and because these uh, appreciation has been there, but it's not something that we're banking on. We, we really like the high return potential for these permanent orchards. We would really like to beat you know, that 8%, 10% return on investment. Possibility, obviously. We, we don't know what's going to happen. But that's kind of our goal is to get a little bit higher of a return. And by doing that, we're farming this land for the investors instead of doing a lease back. So there's also added risk, right? So you get a higher return, but you also have the possibility of, say, a crop loss where you don't get a return, right? You kind of play that risk return type of a deal. And you, you mentioned contracted vineyards. What, what is that? So you can contract your wine grapes with a winery. You can contract those out for 10 years, 5 years, 15 years. They'll take your, your wine grapes. You can contract out your raisins over here in California where you, you have a set price or you know within reason what the price is going to be. Things where it helps hedge against the infrastructure you put in. Right, A, a vineyard is very expensive to put in. And so we want to know that we have a home for it and we're not going to be out on the open market. And we want to know that within reason, our production will pay for the infrastructure and the land that we purchase and give us a decent return. Okay. And does that mean like the grapes, you've based, you're growing them and they're basically already sold? So you're not worried about the perishable part of it like you are with the cherries? Is that the difference? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And then talk about the risks, right? You mentioned something about you might not get a crop that year. Is it possible that, and again, I'm not an expert in farming by any means, but could there be a couple of years where they just none of the walnuts grow or some drought happens or something happens where there's absolutely nothing in crop? Or is it just some years are better than others? Some years are better than others. It would take a catastrophic event like a hailstorm or some sort of issue, whether it be weather or pest, to really hurt that orchard. I'm not saying it's possible, but we do try and mitigate that by obviously we're checking weekly for our pest populations. We are insuring the the orchard with crop insurance. That way, if there is a loss, we cover all of our cultural costs so we can cover our costs to produce those that crop. So we do mitigate that risk as much as we possibly can. Very unusual to have a complete crop loss, you know, but it, I can't say it's never possible. But it's very unusual. Right. Okay. And I've been hearing, and again, I don't know <laughs> much about farming. I keep saying that just so we're clear. But almonds have had a bad reputation because of the water use. But then I saw somewhere that that might not be as accurate because now they're they're making almond milk, they're making coconut milk, oat milk, all these different milks. So I guess my question is, are almonds bad for water or is there is, is there been changes in that? When a crop starts really take off here in the state of California, for whatever reason, it becomes the bad guy, right? So for a long time, it was cotton. Well, cotton uses so much water. Well, cotton doesn't use very much water at all, actually. Almonds use a lot more water. But there's also uh, certain corn crops and alfalfa crops that use a lot more water than almond crops, right? And another thing is, is we're, we're you know, when you irrigate a almond tree, you produce nuts, but you pr- produce leaves, you produce all kinds of different things, not to mention you put water back into the aquifer as it goes down past the root zone. So there's many benefits to farming these trees. I hate to say that they get a bad rap at all because I just don't believe it to be true. If California didn't have all these almond trees or crops planted, it would probably not be a very fun place to live as far as the, you know, maybe the valley fever and the insects that are out of control, you know? Yeah. But they're a good crop and they don't use as much water as, as a lot of other crops. 
It's interesting. And how did the pandemic affect farming? It was really very crop specific. For example, the milk price fell drastically uh, just because kids didn't go to school and there wasn't a school lunch program and and they weren't uh, serving milk. I mean, it's kind of funny the way things you don't think of, right? Lemon prices at first, at the the very beginning, when they closed restaurants, uh, most lemons are used in restaurants uh, and the lemon price fell, right? But then it bounced right back up and demand was out of control. It's kind of funny how each crop specifically either had a bounce back or kind of got held back. Overall, I'd say the pandemic was not good. Uh, Every crop got devastated for the first six to 10 months of the pandemic. I think 2021, we're really seeing these crops bounce back. And I think 2022 is, it will probably see a record year for, for crop prices. And is that because of inflation or just because coming back from the pandemic, people are buying more now and, and getting back into normal, hopefully normal life? I think it's both. I, I really do. I think inflation's really starting to hit. When fuel prices go up, that affects farming, obviously, from tractors in the field, fertilizer that's made from petroleum you know, ways. There's not much you do in farming that, that is not affected by fuel prices. I think that's huge. But then I also think the demand is there and is stronger than ever. Okay. I'd like to pivot here and, and talk about how, as an investor, I can analyze a deal or an operator or the water, the soil to make like, how do I know if I'm going to invest in a farm operation? How do I know which one, what operators are better than others? And, you know, because we have tools to analyze multifamily apartments and and all those kind of things, because that's what we're used to. But if we're getting into a farm, let's start with the operator. How do I vet the operator and make sure they know what they're doing? I think you want to look at a history to see what they've been farming, how long they've been farming, and make sure that whoever this operator is has a good track record. The farming community as a whole is, is, is very small, right? So <laughs> you wouldn't believe how many people know each other. And as far as vetting that particular operator, I think the more you dig in, you'd be able to, to, to find out whether they're a, a good actor or a bad actor, right? But I think that's important, to, mostly to see their history. When you're looking at the asset itself, farmland, sort of like uh, apartments, right? There's an A, a B, and a C. In farming, we have one, two, and three type soils. So you want to look at their soil and you want to see what crops are being planted on that soil, make sure that it's correct and make sure that the production is what it's supposed to be. So when you look at a crop and you're going to buy something, you can you can look at the history if the, if the crop is producing. So you can see what it produced last year, the year before, and know within reason what it should produce in the following years. And then you know, really, when, you, when, when you're looking at any real estate asset and you look at past appreciation, you look at future appreciation, you look at interest rates and things of that sort, that's a big one, right? You want to make sure that the income that that farm is producing is going to be representative on average of what the price you're paying for that asset. And then big thing for us is I've seen some pretty high appreciation rates And I'm not saying that's wrong because there has been some high appreciation on some crops and whatnot. But I'd be wary if you look at something and it says it has a six and a half percent appreciation rate over 10 years or something like that. You you know, that you might want to back that out to something realistic, right? So, I mean, those are sort of things that you would look at that would be very similar to looking at other other assets. And if we're investing through Farm Funder, are those deals that you've already, I mean, they're your deals, right? So you've already vetted them. probably operating them is that is all the information you just talked about as far as 
how to figure out and analyze those deals? Is that all there for us to view, including financials and pro forma and that type of thing? Yes. Before anything goes on the site, we've already vetted that particular piece of property and looked at what past production is or what future production could be. We're looking very hard at water, water rights, what's available, the wells as far as surface water, which there could be uh, water stock that you know that's owned by the canal that comes down and, and irrigates. We look at all those things to make sure that in the future, it's going to have enough water during drought years. We're famous for our droughts out here. We want to make sure that if we're in a five-year drought, there is still water for this particular piece of property. So we vet all these pieces of property and crops to make sure that it is a good investment. And I can tell you, we're pretty picky. I've seen some other deals out there that are, have, have came across my desk that we have gladly passed on that have been out in the internet world. We only want stuff that has a true profit potential. Okay. And are you primarily in California or are there other places that you're buying, buying farms and as well? All of our deals have been in California. We have looked at deals in uh, Arizona, Washington, and Oregon, but we haven't found anything that we've liked in those states yet. We've gotten real close to some stuff in Arizona, but there were some water issues that we didn't like, so we decided not to offer it. They were a little unknown. We're not opposed to any geographical area, but we want to make sure that all the stars align for the investors before we put anything on the platform. So if you invest in something that's not near where you are, like if you were to go out of state, do you hire managers there that have already been doing that? Or, or do, you, do you have your own people that go out there? We would vet a farm manager and make sure that they are uh, the right person to manage that farm. So if I'm an investor and I don't know much about farming, but I want some exposure to farming, then we're kind of relying on you as the manager, farm funder, to select some investments and put them on your platform and then I can choose this one looks good or that one looks good. But how do I, if you have three investments up there, how do I decide which one is best for me? There's a personal aspect to it. There's some people who don't want to invest in walnuts, but may want to invest in pistachios just because they like the way they taste or they they may (laughs) want to invest in almonds because they love almond milk. What's funny is that, you know, every year we send out at the end of the year, we send out a portion of the crop to our investors that invested in it, right? So, so we'll send almonds out to everyone invested in the almond uh, orchard, right? Not a lot, but just something so everyone gets to see, hey, listen, this is what we did and this is what you grew. So that's part of it. And then, and then you want to look at the return. I mean, you, you may look at something and say, hey, this eight and a half or 9% return is not really what I want. I'd rather, it's only, it's only $10,000. I want to risk a, a 12%, even though it's a little higher risk, right? I think there's a, a, a personal preference to that. And are there, do you have past returns on that, that we can look at? So if it's an almond farm, can I see that, hey, you guys have done an almond farm before and the returns have typically been 5% or 10% or whatever, or are those even comparable? Can you compare one farm to another, even if it's the same crop? It's hard to compare one farm to the other just because there's so many different variables. For example, you can go two miles away and, and pay you know, $21,000 an acre for a almond farm. And then two miles the other direction, it's 38,000 just because of the higher return and what these trees in the ground are producing. So it's really hard to compare. And you really have to get a long track record as far as uh, we've got now our second year on some of these investments, which are coming through the pandemic, which is kind of funny. And you want to compare over a larger five-year, you can have a 20% return and then a 1% return. And that's very common in the agricultural world. So you want to look at it over time. Okay. 
And so it might make sense if you if the minimum's ten thousand dollars and you have fifty thousand dollars to invest, it might make sense to do five different investments rather than go all in with one just because you're smoothing out the results, right? If you have a twenty percent year and a one percent year, well, maybe the other farm is at the opposite schedule, you can smooth out your returns a little bit. Yes, exactly. Yep. Very true. Okay. So do you do you co-invest on these farms? Are you guys investing in, in the farms as well? Yeah, we usually invest in every farm. Okay. Awesome. That's that is one thing that, you know, we look at when we're talking to sponsors. Again, this is in regular, regular real estate, is just to have some skin in the game from the uh, from the sponsor. Can you also talk about what type of fees are there? Are there management fees? asset management fees, property management fees. I, I, I don't kind of have a concept for what the fees might be. Sure. So Farm Funder charges a 1.5% fee on the capital that's raised, and that's yearly. And then we have a management fee for the farmer, which is roughly uh, $150 or $160 an acre for the year. It really depends. Uh, those fees can go up or down depending on the crop type and the size of the ranch, the size of the farm. And if it's in-house or if it's a uh, another farmer that's managing it. But those are the, the, pretty much the only two fees. There's some legal fees, things of that sort, costs of capital, or, or, or uh, I'm sorry, uh, if we borrow money, things of that sort, but okay. not a lot of fees. Okay. And before I get to our, our last question, because this is such a, a new asset class for, for me and, and for, for left field investors, for most of us, is there anything else we should know about Farm Thunder or about farming? And, and as far as if we're looking to invest, is there anything else that we, we need to know? You know, I think you want to be careful of what's being offered out there and, and make sure it's, it's something that fits your personal beliefs or wants, right? You want to make sure that it's a true investment. It's a, it's a, a true return that they're offering. For example, you may want to invest in organic, right? Uh, only organic make sure that whoever's offering these things that it's the farms are able to be certified organic and that they're not blowing blown smoke at you. Right. Well, this has been very interesting. Like I said, I don't have a whole lot of experience with this. So we're just kind of on a learning journey. The last question I generally ask is um, if you're a podcast person, what's, what's a great podcast that you listen to, whether it's farming related that we might like or real estate related? I used to be a podcast person and about two or three years ago, I started just getting into audiobooks and I have been on an audiobook kick. So I have <laughs> listened to all kinds of different audiobooks, but I, I honestly have not been listening to podcasts in a while. Well, that's all right. Can you give us a good uh, audiobook? Because it's not much different, right? Oh man, I'm trying to think of the last couple that I've listened to. Uh, you, you know what's funny? I, I think the last one I just finished was that long... 35-hour Warren Buffett snowball, I think was the name. Oh, really? It was a very long book. It was literally like 30 hours or something. And it was about his life and journey and things of that sort. It's kind of interesting, actually. Oh, that's great. I, I'm going to have to check that out. I, I'm, a, I'm a Warren Buffett fan. That's interesting. So how can our listeners get in touch with you if they want to invest or just find more information? What's the best way to get in touch with you? So the best way would be to uh, go to the website at farmfunder.com. That's F-A-R-M. F-U-N-D-R.com. And you can email us at info at farmfunder.com. And we are here to answer any of your questions. Awesome. I will put that in the show notes. Thank you very much. This was fascinating. We appreciate you being on the show. Jim, I do appreciate it. That was interesting uh, having that conversation with Brandon. If you listen to the whole podcast, you could tell I don't know much about farming, but you got to start somewhere. You got to start learning. 
I was interested to hear it's, it's accredited only. A lot of the crowdfunding websites, you can get on there with non-accredited, but the minimums are $10,000. So that means you can take 30 grand and get into three farms and, and kind of spread out your risk a little bit. As he talked about, sometimes there might be low years of yield and sometimes there's great y- yield. So to spread it out seems to make a little bit of sense. I also thought it was interesting that the land, you could have value add on land, who knew? But I guess it makes sense. You can put structures on it, you can increase the water, you can you know, do stuff to the soil. I was also pleased that there's depreciation because when I think of depreciation, I always think we well, can't depreciate land. But you put things on the land like trees or buildings and you can depreciate that. So there are tax benefits to this. And it's also low leverage, which sometimes is good. Most of our investments are pretty high leverage. So to have some that are totally different with low leverage and a different asset class. I like that as well. I was also personally and selfishly pleased to find out that I can start drinking almond milk again because I had switched to coconut milk thinking that it takes up too much water, but I'm glad that uh, that, that got figured out. The last thing is, you know, we, we say sometimes the reason I like investing in part apartments is everyone's got to have a place to live. Well, if that's true, everyone's got to eat, right? So why aren't we investing more in farmland? It's probably because we've thought the returns weren't adequate. There aren't big enough returns. But you know what? If people like Bill Gates are investing in it, maybe it's worth checking out. And maybe it's worth going to Farm Thunder and seeing what the um, what the returns actually are. And because you can start small, you can put a little bit in there and just try it out and see how you like it. That's definitely something I'm going to consider. I want to get into farming and this might be the way to do it. We'll see you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.